1: Hello, i'm anthony fury thanks for joining us for the latest episode of full comment please consider subscribing if you haven't already medical assistance in dying made as it's called is expanding in canada in ways that a lot of people are perhaps not even aware of laws were first introduced permitting made in canada just over five years ago but in early 2021 the categories and situations were broadened in ways that are concerning to a number of experts do we really know what we're getting into here Shouldn't we perhaps talk this out a little bit more as a nation? To help us understand the complexity of these issues, where we're at in the situation here in Canada, and where we may be going awry, we're joined today by Dr. Sanu Gand. Dr. Gand is a professor at the University of Toronto and the head of psychiatry at Humber River Hospital, where he is the physician chair of the Medical Assistance and Dying Committee. Dr. Gand, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate it.
0: My pleasure. Thank you both for having me and also, more importantly, for your interest in this uh, challenging and complex topic.
1: Yeah, challenging indeed. And and there's definitely a lot of perspectives, a a lot of uh, both professional perspectives, but also very uh, raw opinions out there uh, that a lot of people are sharing. I'm kind of surprised to find us so suddenly back at this conversation, as I know it was a national conversation about five years ago, following a court ruling. Uh, A lot of people said, uh, well, it's a slippery slope, watch out. And we said, well, okay, you know, take it one step at a time. Uh, But it looks like recently we have gone a further step, which I guess requires a, a subsequent conversation.
0: Yes, and this is why I'm so appreciative that you're uh, taking the time to look at this issue, because I honestly believe that the vast majority of Canadians are completely unaware of just how far things have gone and in such a short time. So I think there are a lot of misconceptions out there about where our current expanded policies are going and and how we've come to um, be where we are.
1: Well, can you explain to us how things first sort of developed back around 2016 when uh, there was, I guess, a court ruling saying uh, medical assistance in dying would be allowed to end the suffering of terminally ill adults. What what were the confines of that? How did that sort of work uh, practically?
0: So what happened was in 20, um, the court ruling was from 2015, and it led to laws that were implemented in 2016. And the ruling was in a case called Carter versus Canada. And in that case, there were two plaintiffs, two people who were um, they were fighting for the ability to have a medically assisted death. And each of those people had what we call a neurodegenerative illness, meaning an illness that has uh, known progression and a known course to it. And it was known that they would not be able to improve. One of them had ALS and the other had spinal stenosis so what the supreme court found in that case was that the up until then blanket prohibition the country had against assisted dying that the blanket prohibition violated our charter and what that means is they said that you can't just say that you're unable to provide assisted dying in any situation it may be suitable in some situations now keep in mind that prohibition was actually in the criminal um in our criminal law is is the law that needed to change so what changed in 2016 to conform with that ruling was that the government brought in bill c14 which allowed for assisted dying in certain circumstances and one of the safeguards that was required was that a medical condition that was grievous meaning really serious and irremediable meaning It will not get better that we can predict it won't get better that you needed to have a grievous and irremediable medical condition and one of the safeguards was that natural death needed to be reasonably foreseeable and so that's what the initial framework was based on in 2016.
1: What was the response among the medical community to this ruling? Was there the sense that yes, we need to provide uh, these opportunities for people that this is a gap? So there was, a, I don't know if relief is the right term, but a general agreement with this. Was was there anxiety? Uh, what, what was the level of acceptance to resistance? Would you say
0: it's a it, it's a controversial area in some, area in some ways, but I do think that the ruling at that time, which was framed in the context of providing assisted dying. When someone is already dying, that's a key distinction because right, death right. needed to be reasonably foreseeable. There there has been a shift towards greater acceptance that that is appropriate in some situations. And it's not a universal shift. I don't think there's a 100% agreement on either side in this complex debate, but it is something that shifted over time. And to put that in context, you know, there, there had been a previous Supreme Court ruling in a case about 20, in in the 1990s, in 1993, um, a a different case challenging the same law. And that was a case also of a woman, Sue Rodriguez, who had ALS. And in that ruling, the Supreme Court upheld the existing law through a split decision. And in the 2015 ruling, the Supreme Court unanimously ruled that the law violated the charter. So even that represents some sort of shift in what society and people seem to think was acceptable. The concern became though, that some people um, did not agree with it and it did allow the option for people to be what are called conscientious objectors, meaning if somebody did not want to participate on the medical side, that they shouldn't be compelled to um but there were others who were not conscientious objectors but they had concerns about further expansion and that's the category i fall in i'm not a conscientious objector i actually as you mentioned i chair our i'm physician chair of our hospital made team i've seen the potential benefit and value that made can bring in appropriate situations i've also been sensitized to what i think are the dire dangers of providing assisted suicide in inappropriate situations. That is where I believe we're heading.
1: And and Dr. Gand, this position, physician chair of this committee, uh, can you break down what that is, what what, what you do in that capacity?
0: So we have developed policies, every site would have done this to Mm -hmm. develop policies to allow for assisted dying under the existing laws. And part of my role in that committee has been to assist the hospital and the team in developing those policies. And there's also a role of oversight of the actual cases and applications that come through for assisted dying. Now, I'm a psychiatrist. My background is psychiatry and psycho-oncology. In other words, um, when patients have, have cancer as well. And the made laws that we have had up until now Because that reasonably foreseeable death safeguard had been there and mental illnesses on their own do not by and large lead to death. Sole mental illness conditions have not been things that have really been open for getting made for. So people could apply for made if they have a mental illness plus another condition that had been leading to foreseeable death. But mental illness conditions alone generally would not qualify for that. And as a result, in terms of my role, we haven't had applications for sole mental illness. So as a psychiatrist, I wouldn't have a role in doing the clinical assessment of whether somebody's ALS is irremediable, for example, or whether their lung disease is irremediable. So it's more of an oversight role where we would review things as a team. Um, But again, we, so far have not had made for soul mental illness by and large
1: so now we're in a situation march 2021 the law further amended by bill c7 which has expanded the situations and categories were made is made available to patients in in what sort of scope has this now changed
0: so if if i can take a second i'll rewind a little bit yeah please in order to get to that question because you mentioned at the beginning that some people had concerns there could be a slippery slope and others were saying no there's no need to worry about a slippery slope right you know in my opinion um i would say that we have not actually experienced a slippery slope there's no slope there's a cliff and i believe our made laws are falling off that cliff and i'll tell you why i say that so before even getting to the expansion in C7 from 2021, before getting there. Let's just talk for a minute about what has been happening with MAID under the old system, when death needed to be reasonably foreseeable. And this is part of what I think many people don't understand. When death needed to be reasonably foreseeable, it did not mean that you only had two weeks or two months or even two years left to live. It was generally acknowledged through other case law that occurred during that time that even if someone had up to a decade to live up to 10 years to live that could qualify and would qualify and did qualify for getting made so we're not talking about people right on death's doorstep, even under the old system
1: i wasn't aware you know, of that to your point yeah, about canadians not really understanding i did not know that part
0: yeah and and so what that means quite literally is that even age ended up becoming a potential quote-unquote qualifier, because the issue of age and frailty did come into play. Uh, you know. And so if you could say to anyone that, yeah, we think it's reasonable that you might have 10 years or a bit less to live, they actually would have qualified under the old system without expansion. Now, under the old system, let's look at briefly what the numbers were, that the country gets national statistics. The way we've Uh, compile them, there's always a bit of a delay in the national reporting. So I'm going to give you two years of national reporting. The latest national reporting we have is from 2020. In other words, pre-expansion of C7. But I'm going to talk first about 2019. So in the year 2019, which was just a few years after MAID came in in 2016, in that short time, our national death rate from MAID was 2%, meaning that 2% of all deaths in Canada by 2019 were by MAID. Some provinces were quite a bit higher than that. So Quebec was at almost 2.5% and BC at about three and a third percent. Over the next year, so into 2020, again, before expansion of C7, the death rate in every single province went up. They quite remarkably called the term a growth rate. They called it a growth rate in the death rate by MAID. And so by 2020, 2.5% of all Canadians dying that year died by MAID. And Quebec had gone up to over 3%. B.C. had gone up to over 4%. And we know that even within there, there are pockets that are even higher. It's reported that Vancouver Islands, Uh, death rate by MAID is over 7%, and it's been dubbed the MAID capital or assisted dying capital of the world. Now, all of that is before Bill C-7 expansion. Now let's look at what happens with Bill C-7 expansion. Okay, Can I just ask you
1: one, one question? though? Because I imagine some advocates of this would say that that increase in rates is an indication of, of what people have always wanted anyway, and that it's, well, maybe not good news. These are people who are uh, avoiding uh, the, the great Pains that they anticipated at at the at the what would be a more natural end of life, or they are allowed a, a death with dignity now, and that that number is something again not to be celebrated, but th- that people got what they wanted. Uh, how do how do you respond to to that position, which I've heard advocated?
0: And I've heard people say I've heard the made advocates for expansion or expansionists. I've heard them say precisely that that, oh, that's a good thing. Right. The more made, the better. And
1: in fact, I've literally <laughs> the heard more them- better. Pardon me, been, <laughs> what a lot
0: no, I'm not trying to be um, facetious. I've literally right. heard that. I've also heard them say that the problem is not that the rate is high in some provinces, it's that it's low in others. Huh. And that that reflects that there's not enough availability of people to get made. Now, uh, before kind of saying, which way should we fall on that? I have to point out that people need to realize, especially as MAID laws expand, they affect different people and different populations in different ways. And we'll hopefully come back to this near the end, because I think this is really a key, key point. But when we look at the number of people dying by MAID, we also need to look at who are those people who are dying by MAID and why are they getting it? There is a pocket of people. There are some people who get made because they want to die with dignity. They've lived a life of autonomy, and they want to preserve their dignity and autonomy and die with dignity. As we expand made laws especially, there is also a second group of people, and evidence shows this, who, it's not that they're seeking death with dignity, they're seeking an escape from life suffering. Hmm. And the life suffering includes social suffering. When when we look at who's actually been getting made when death is foreseeable, right? So if death is predictable and foreseeable, that group does actually tend to be, according to the research, that group tends to be more privileged. They have had higher education. They come from higher socioeconomic status, and they tend to be white. That's the description in the terms of the researchers in multiple places that have looked at this but when you expand made which is now what we're doing when you expand made for conditions beyond death being foreseeable in other words when you expand made to people who are not dying then a different group starts to be affected and they seek it for different reasons they seek it because they are suffering from things like poverty loneliness isolation you also see and i'll talk about this a bit later a gender gap emerging with twice as many women as men getting made for psychiatric euthanasia in in the European countries that allow it. So it's not just a population number of 2% or 2.5%. It is who is getting made for what reasons and then who keeps getting it as we expand the laws more. And to me, that shifts the question from not, well, where where do we think the perfect balance is? it shifts the question to which mistakes do we want to make? Do we want to say that somebody, to preserve their autonomy, we want to make it even easier for them to get it, even if they have more than 10 years left to live? But by doing that, we also change the goalposts, and we know that others are now going to get it because they've had life-suffering society refuse to help them with.
1: Is it preferable to have made available for someone who otherwise and i can't think of a a more diplomatic way to say this would otherwise have just had a a messier suicide
0: when we look at the actual evidence and you know that is something that the expansion advocates have or activists have um have said is an issue oh we're trying to avoid people from having, in the terms you're using, a messier or painful suicide, the evidence does not support that. Hmm, What we actually find is this, that in the, so if we look at psychiatric suicide and suicide attempts, it's an interesting statistic, which is universally, this is repeatedly found, that by a two to one ratio, more women than men attempt suicide. So they try to end their lives when, they have, when they're suffering from a mental illness. And the vast majority of them do not end up taking their lives. So the initial suicide attempt, they end up surviving it. And most do not try again. And this is a clear thing we see with the suicide research, that in the vast majority of cases, suicide in those contexts is something that uh, there's a lot of ambivalence about but people may have that ambivalence for a prolonged period of time. It's not that it's uh, it's only there for one day or two days. It can be for a long period of time. And if they get to the point of acting on it, that's when they have a suicide attempt. What we're doing with MAID is we are changing a transient suicidality in those situations into a permanent death. Because when you look at the European countries that provide psychiatric euthanasia, You see that exact same two to one ratio of women to men who actually get their lives ended. So in other words, something which they might otherwise have a suicide attempt and survive and then not try again and go on to live meaningful lives. We're now making it easier for them in that initial period to actually have their lives ended by us.
1: So the data shows that suicide attempts, many of them are cries for help. So let's help them.
0: It, and I, I'm, so in terms of cries for help, I mean, they, they, the person really is suffering. Right. It's not that they're doing something um, to, you know, manipulate the situation. That's not at all what I would mean in terms of cry for help. But it is a sign that they need help. Okay. And the help they need, the help they need is help with their illness and help to, um, to live. And in fact, I've spoken with many people who have said, you know, I've uh, people who've struggled with chronic depression, who've said, at that point in my life, in the past, I was competent. I still had capacity. So people still usually retain capacity to make decisions, even when they have mental illness. But the decisions they make change, right? Think about it. Anyone who's been depressed knows this. When we're depressed, we think differently. And this is also backed up by evidence and research. We have what's called a cognitive triad of... I am bad, the world is bad, and the future will be bad. It it changes how we think. Think about how that makes you feel about whether you want to be here in the context of suffering from mental illness and poverty and loneliness. And so in that context, somebody may actually want to end their life and they can't see anything else. My role as a psychiatrist has always been to say, you know, I actually know from the evidence and from experience that we actually can help you. And I think that's what our role should be. There's one fellow who, I I won't say his name, but he does talk publicly about this. It's actually a bit painful for me to um, even say. I always get a little emotional thinking about this. But he struggled with mental illness for many years, chronic depression, sometimes getting better, other times worse. And uh, it did have suicidal thoughts for much of that and he tells the story he tells the story of standing on a bridge and he was planning contemplating jumping and literally somebody in a crowd behind him said said jump jump if you can believe that and somebody else pulled out their hand held his collar and just pulled him back. And he came back and he didn't instantly recover. It's not that, but he did recover. He got better. He lived and is living a meaningful, fulfilling life. He's actually become a mental health advocate. And I, I don't wanna be the person on that bridge that doesn't say, we're gonna help you live and find a way to live a meaningful life again. And that is what the evidence actually shows Uh, the risk is with expanded made and psychiatric euthanasia
1: we'll be back with more full comment in just a moment dr gand in response to the expanding legislation would your perspective be that we just need to think this through more and and maybe not go ahead with this or is it that we need different safeguards involved to to act as further checks and balances
0: you know that's an excellent question and one of the um, fundamental issues here is that if you bypass the fundamental safeguard no other safeguard means anything and what i mean by that is this one of the fundamental safeguards this is embedded in our legislation this is what canadians have been told and sold that made is about they've been told that MAID is for a grievous and irremediable condition that is something which for mental illnesses is a fallacy To be able to apply to made laws because mental illnesses can be grievous and absolutely can lead to terrible suffering as bad or worse suffering than physical or other medical illnesses however what you cannot do with any mental illness is predict when it won't get better so the issue of it being irremediable that's actually impossible to predict and that's not me saying this this is something which every group that's actually looked at this has reached that conclusion, that that's what the national and worldwide evidence shows, that in any individual case, you cannot predict when the person will or will not get better. CAMH has said this. They've said it very bluntly. The American Psychiatric Association does not support this sort of expanded MAID. The Australians don't. The Canadian Mental Health Association doesn't. And so this idea that we're telling people that, oh, yeah, I think you're not going to get better, that is not based on any scientific evidence. And in fact, the scientific evidence shows we can't make those predictions. So my question is, if we are not providing made for when the condition can't get better, when it's irremediable, what are we providing it for? And then it opens the door to all of that other life and psychosocial suffering. You know, even even groups... That support made for mental illness, even they acknowledge and admit that you cannot make these predictions. So the Quebec Association, the Quebec Psychiatrist Association, the AMPQ, this was in a paper that was written um, by their group, and it included the author, uh, or as one of the authors, the same person who's currently chairing the federal expert panel on mental illness. And that group actually literally said regarding irremediability and mental illness, it is possible that a person who has recourse to MAID regardless of his condition could have regained the desire to live at some point in the future. And then they remarkably, in my opinion, remarkably go on to say that while regarding, you know, the certainty and eligibility criteria, Assessors will have to answer this ethical question each and every time they evaluate a request. And, you know, our law is not that somebody has a grievous and irremediable medical condition if in the ethical opinion of each and every assessor they do. That opens it up to such non-scientific, non-evidence-based judgments that place our patients at risk of premature death when they're in a state of suicidality.
1: Dr. Gand, I want to get your, your take on a CTV news story from November 2020 that I, I've never forgotten. It, it surprised me and shocked me uh, for a number of reasons. I, I'm sure you're aware of these incidents. There's a few of them. The headline is, Facing Another Retirement Home Lockdown, 90-Year-Old Chooses Medically Assisted Death. And you go through the story and it explains uh, this lady, 90-year-old Nancy Russell, died surrounded by friends and family. It was what she wanted it was the exact opposite of the lonely months of lockdown she had suffered through in a retirement home where she had lived for several years Uh, the story goes on to to talk about her life Um, it says the 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 lockdowns were so crushing for her and uh, there's so much that can of course be said about our our treatment of elderly long-term care homes retirement homes pandemic rules which were legitimate which weren't but when i read this story i remember uh, a year and a half ago I thought I didn't think this was what medically assisted dying was for. How did this all come about? I appreciate that she's a 90-year-old beyond normal life expectancy, but she was also not facing an imminent death from uh, from a deteriorating health issue.
0: Yeah, you know, I actually I, I think you've struck the nail on the head. How did this come about? Because uh, this is not it's not what I signed up for when I got um, when when i actually believed in the value of assisted dying in some situations it's not the sort of thing that i think most people most canadians would think made should be for and unfortunately that actually is what this expanded made is exposing people to and i believe the way we got here is you know there are a number of myths that have fueled what has led to expanded MAID. As I said at the beginning, most people don't even realize that even before expansion, if somebody had even up to 10 years of life left, they probably would have qualified. But I think the key myth that allows this to perpetuate, and this is very sad to me. I I see so many of the expansion activists um, repeatedly saying that, oh, MAID is about autonomy. They're telling people it's about your autonomy. Well, and, and that's very appealing because people say, of course, autonomy is good. And if we have more autonomy, all the better. Well, when we actually look at the stories you're talking about, about who are some of the people getting made. And, and this is from work that continues to come out. This is from December of 2021, um, looking at psychiatric euthanasia. What kind of suffering is actually leading to these people getting it? There's a range of it, but it includes things like perceived failures to live up to the expectations of others and societal standards and norms, feeling a burden to society, the accumulation of several misfortunes, life misfortunes, and perceived difficulties leading to a so-called culmination point. And we've had already had headlines. You know, I was on a podcast um, with Canada Land, I think it was, in October. And the heading of that podcast was a woman in our country, in B.C., saying, I die when I run out of money. The, um, th- this has, as it should, it's attracting international attention. You know, Canada prides itself. As a Canadian, I like to pride our country as being well, one that's on the forefront for social justice. In this area, I think we're taking a huge step backwards. And to be blunt, I think we're implementing policies of privilege that actually embed ableism ageism racism and sexism and expose the most marginalized to unnecessary premature deaths for this autonomy myth and i'll get back to that in a second but in terms of the international headlines there was a piece in the uk spectator just in the past week or two titled why is canada canada euthanizing the poor and it goes through some of the things there now in terms of autonomy as I mentioned before, um, you will have a group that has lived well and now will have the chance potentially to die more on their own terms, although I honestly think that even in that group, most people don't realize that they would have been able to get made even if they had 10 years of life left, even before before expansion. But let's say let's say the expansion, does increase the autonomy for some who have lived well and now want to die well. Well, these other things I was talking about, about people getting it for life suffering, that's not autonomy. That is seeking an escape from life. It's not seeking a dignified death. And so this myth of autonomy, it's a specific type of autonomy. It is what I would call privileged autonomy
1: dr gand i must say i myself am conflicted on this because i have always approached so many life choice issues from a very libertarian perspective where i say ultimately even if it's something that i don't agree with i wouldn't do myself i wouldn't want people i love doing it who am i what place do i have to tell a consenting adult what they can and can't do and this issue hopefully we are we are dealing with poverty issues so that nobody even has that thought hopefully we're dealing with mental health challenges hopefully we are providing all the other exit ramps but ultimately if someone has thought thought through this hopefully thoroughly hopefully at length who am i ultimately and who are we as society to ultimately limit this option how would you respond to, to people such as myself who are conflicted because of that uh, very thought process
0: well i i do understand that conflict and. I agree with you that when people have true autonomy, we should support them in the decisions that they make. The problem is that the things that I make as my decisions in any society, they can also affect other people. And the laws that we implement affect different people in different ways. So it is questionable whether it's truly an autonomous decision for somebody who's in a state of depression, who's mental illness is affecting how they think. They're still capable, um, you know, they still have legal capacity and competency. But as I mentioned before, their thoughts are being affected by I am bad, the world is bad, future will be bad. And there are known biological correlates that lead to the sense of hopelessness and despair in depression. And suicidality is a symptom of mental illnesses. It's actually one of the core symptoms of some mental illnesses. And so in that state, to facilitate somebody to end their life, when we cannot even say to them that they won't get better, but we pretend that that's what we're giving it to them for, for an irremediable condition that we can't predict, to me, that is morally wrong. Because we know from the evidence that most of those people actually will get better and will themselves regain the will to live. So it's not about imposing somebody's external autonomy on anyone it's about recognizing that well as i expand my quote unquote right for made under all of these other circumstances it is exposing a different group of marginalized or vulnerable people who are suffering from all sorts of life suffering who actually most of whom would get better but in their state of transient wishes for death, will be facilitating and fueling those. That's how I would answer that. You know, there's, um, uh, and this was actually in the UK spectator piece that I mentioned to you before, but there's a quote from a French um, poet, I think he was, many years back, and I'll just read it to you, and you can kind of figure it out for yourself, but he sa- it's Anatoly France, and he says, the law in its majestic equality, forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets, and to steal bread. Pointing out that it's the same law, but obviously it affects people in different ways. You're probably not going to have too many people who are rich needing to sleep under bridges or beg in the streets. And if Anatoly France was alive today, I actually think the ghost of Anatoly France would say this about Canada's current made laws and expansion that Canada's made law in its majestic equality helps the poor as well as the rich to die for life suffering. To me, that's not autonomy.
1: Dr. Gann, when you talk about vulnerable persons, one category of individuals most people agree are in more vulnerable positions are youth or are children and when we talk about expanding medical assisted death a lot of concerns right away gravitate to to what degree does this or does this not involve children or a, a phrase that's used in this in the medical context mature minors usually referring to teenagers what are your concerns about that category
0: it's very similar to the last question you asked about well if somebody in that moment is deemed to have capacity shouldn't we respect their wish and their autonomy and that argument has been extended to mature minors to say well it shouldn't depend it shouldn't matter what age they are if you've got a 12 year old who understands what they are asking for and we deem them to have legal capacity or competency they should be able to get it there are made expansion activists who are seeking precisely that uh, I am highly concerned about that, because once again, I think what it does is in a very, um, I would say this is an artificial, this entire thing is often an artificially narrow focus on, oh, it's just that person's individual autonomy, and it excludes everything else. So let's look at youth for a second. We know that the brain, the human brain, continues to develop in terms of Specific things that are necessary for decision making into our third decade. So, by the age of even 25, it may not be fully the frontal cortex and other key parts of our brains that are involved in decision making are not actually fully developed in terms of where they eventually will be going.
1: We also I remember that was a concern I, 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 around uh, legalizing marijuana, the concerns was, that 18 to 25 bracket there.
0: That's exactly, I was actually going to go exactly there, that, you know, I find it striking that in our society, I, I don't have a problem with this other stuff I'm talking about. When I say striking, I'm talking about the contrast. But I find it striking that in our society, nobody raises concerns, or I won't say nobody, but people generally accept that we can have a legal age for drinking, we can have a legal age for voting, we can have a legal age for marijuana, but we can't have a legal age for when we are going to help a non-dying teenager or less end their life. I find that remarkable. And, and the science and evidence completely doesn't support that. But again, if the only issue that people are paying attention to is, oh, it's that individual's autonomy, Let's provide them what they're asking. It's such an artificial argument.
1: Dr. Gand, to your point, there are activists who are pushing still for further expansion of this. And also to one of your very beginning points, a lot of Canadians aren't even aware of of what's going on now and weren't even aware of exactly what the 2016 laws brought about. You've talked about this being beyond a slippery slope, but are are we still falling? Do we still potentially have more to go?
0: Well, I think that opening it up to mature minors, opening it up to uh, sole mental illness conditions that we are pretending we can predict to be irremediable when we can't, I think that those are bridges we should not be crossing. So we do have uh, uh, ways more that we could go, but I don't think we should. You know, this is actually pretty unusual, I'm pretty sure, for a podcast, but I wonder if you would bear with me for me to read you a two-minute poem that I wrote the night that Bill C-7 passed.
1: Yes, please. Okay.
0: So this just to put this in context, this was in March 2021, uh, March 11th, and Bill C-7 passed with uh, what they called the Sunset Clause that meant that within two years, made for soul mental illness will be provided. And incidentally, that Sunset Clause, remarkably, you know, for a year, the government had said we're not going to have made forcible mental illness in the initial draft of that bill the attorney general uh, minister lamedi was giving those assurances repeatedly and then less than a month before this date in march the government changed its mind they put in the sunset clause that had been recommended then by the senate committee and after one evening of debate that the government foreshortened with, I believe, what they call a a closure motion or something like this. So literally one evening of debate, this bill with sunset clause passes. Um, The the political background is interesting because the vote was largely along party lines. Almost all the liberals voted for it. The bloc voted for it. Um, But the people who voted against it, it was actually left and right united in voting against it. Huh. So, the NDP and Conservatives and Greens, Independents, and a smattering of Liberals voted against it. And I was very disturbed that, and I, I have to say, and I, I was really upset because I could see where things were going to be going. And I could picture the headlines that we're now seeing about, I die when I run out of money. And so, I wrote this that night, and it's called Last Rights: Ode to C-7. So, O oh Canada, my brave new world, glorious and gore-free will soon become the land of death on demand, full autonomy, at least for me. I've been granted good life, good friends, good wealth. Thank you, C7, for dealing me good, easy death. My last rights, my last right, easing suffering at my choosing, sanitized, beautified, the choice will be mine, my death so peaceful, ready for prime time. I hear whispers in the background warnings to not short the price of tomorrow's mornings, that the cost of my saving grief will be those seeking relief from a life lived without my privilege, not dying but only trying to get by in life, those we won't help live but will now give enticed escape from strife. But whispers I can ignore if they fall on the shores of those who whisper louder, experts reassuring me prouder. It's their task to know full well, but I don't ask and they don't tell. And besides, it's not entitlement. Consider the enlightenment of those non-white, non-wealthy and wise, of those marginalized, to finally have a choice to die well, when in life they had no voice, their only choice was living hell. So thank you, Canada, powers that be, for ensuring that our smooth passings will reflect the privilege of our life trappings. I will soon be free without anxiety, knowing that with ease I can choose the time of my going. And any poor souls sacrificed on this altar of my choice, my voice, there will be no way of knowing.
1: Wow. Those would be powerful words to end by, but I, I wanna talk about a, a couple more issues before we go, Dr. Gand. And one of them relates to what you said about the vote on all of this, the legislation being a bit more aggressive than it needed to be. I, I know we haven't invited you on as a as a political analyst, but what is your sense of what people think they're trying to accomplish in bringing in these laws because to your point we're not just following best practices getting up to global standard we're now the cutting edge if you can call it that for for most jurisdictions it's not something that everybody out there is saying we need this we need this are they do they think that this is following social progress and just something that inevitably must be done is this catering to some special interest groups i mean how did this all come about? I appreciate the technicalities or a Supreme Court ruling five years ago, but more broadly, how how did we get to this point?
0: Again, you know, I, I think that's a, a really important question because when we get to this point, when any country gets to a point like this on issues of national import importance, you kind of hope that due diligence has been done and that different things have been looked at and weighed before decisions are made. That hasn't happened here. So I can't speak to the reasons why, but I can tell you what has happened. And, you know, I think there are a couple of important um, points along this path. You know, when, when the initial law came in, and keep in mind that was through a different um, attorney general, right? That was back when it was uh, Minister uh, Jody Wilson Raybould who brought in the initial law. So when the initial law came in that had reasonably foreseeable natural death as a safeguard, in 2016. And then that was challenged in 2019 in what was called the Truchon ruling in Quebec. So this was a provincial court. And in that ruling, ruled on by one single judge, she overturned or said that the naturally foreseeable reasonable death um, safeguard is overly restrictive and the country has to eliminate it. Now, very unusually, the government did not appeal that by then the attorney general had changed, but it's pretty unusual. I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is that it's pretty unusual for the government not to appeal such provincial rulings to the Supreme court. And they did not do that. You know, it's ironic. I don't even know what this was on, but uh, two days ago, I think it was, yesterday or two days ago, driving home, I heard on the radio that there was some provincial ruling on some other issue. And immediately, the government has said, we're appealing to Supreme Court. In this case, they didn't even appeal it. So it never went through that. The government did not do a five-year review that it was supposed to. And that mandated review was also bypassed. And so in that sense, due process hasn't been done, I think. And I will also say that, and I... Regret saying this but I honestly believe it's true. You know, I'm a I'm a past president of our National Psychiatric Association. I'm a past president of the Canadian Psychiatric Association. And I've signif- had significant concerns about the input of my own association in this because I don't think it's contributed necessary evidence in making these decisions. And I say this as a past president Um, So unlike the American Psychiatric Association or the Irish one or the Australian and New Zealand one, the Canadian Psychiatric Association's input, they basically framed it purely as an issue of discrimination, in my mind. And they said patients with a psychiatric illness should not be discriminated against and nobody wants to discriminate. But then they link it to the assumption that it would be discrimination unless they have the same options available uh, regarding MAID as available to everyone else. And they admitted that they had not looked at whether you could predict whether psychiatric conditions could or could not get better. And most concerning to me, you know, throughout this whole process of whatever it was, a year before the C7 consultations or during that public consultation process, in all of that time, in the written and oral submissions from my own expert group, the number of times they even mentioned mental illness, suicide risk, mental illness-related suicide risk, suicide prevention, even said the word suicide literally was zero. And to me, that's like a respirology association doing public consultations on lung health or lung disease and never mentioning smoking. It's baffling. But what it does mean is that the necessary input into making these decisions wasn't made. And you know, you made the comment about, um, and I am linking a thread here, you made the comment about, oh, we're at the forefront, you know, kind of whether we want to be or not. One other point I want to make is that, unique to Canada, nowhere else in the world actually has this, we have a provision that says that somebody can get made, they can apply for and get made, even if they've never had any attempts at treatment. Think about that, especially in the context of, say, mental illness, but even in general. So, uh, and and the reason for that is there's a qualification in there that things that could make the situation better, they need to be acceptable to the person. Now, nobody's talking about forcing treatment. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that if we're now telling people, oh, yeah, we know you're not going to get better, and they may have never even had access to treatment. That's pretty shocking to me. In other countries that have previously been considered to be more expansive with MAID, so some of the European countries, even there, there's a requirement that reasonable efforts at treatment have been made before you can say that something won't get better. We don't even have that here. So what that means is, rather than helping people live dignified lives in the community and providing them the supports that they may need to do that, in a state of immediate suffering and immense suffering, rather than helping somebody live, we might say, we're gonna you know, help you end your life. And that obviously has financial consequences. You know, this has been looked at pre-expansion and estimates made post-expansion. The parliamentary budget office was tasked with doing estimates on how many hundreds of millions of dollars Um, Actually, uh, less it costs to provide MAID than to provide medical care. And that doesn't even count the social supports that are no longer needed to help a disabled person live in the community with dignity. So uh, what I'm saying is that whether people consciously are thinking about these levers or not, they are all there. And... In terms of even these financial implications on a strained healthcare system, I mean, you, you can do the math yourself.
1: Yeah. Wow. Dr. Gant, I have learned so much during this conversation right now. And it all goes back to your original point that perhaps we are not having an informed national conversation, Canadians are not fully apprised. Of what's going on with this issue. Whatever opinions they have, whatever uh, views they end up holding about it, that, that we need to probably hash things out a bit better as a nation. So I hope our conversation today can at least be helpful in, in, in some small way in heading in that dire- direction. Dr. Gan, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: And and thank you so much for your um, kind of thoughtful consideration of, of these issues and openness to, to thinking about the various perspectives. Thank you.
1: Full Comment is a post-media podcast. I'm Anthony Fury. This episode was produced by Andre Prue with theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe to Full Comment on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Music. You can listen through the app or your Alexa-enabled devices. You can help us by giving us a rating or a review, and by telling your friends about us. Thanks for listening.